You are listening to the podcast of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. CBMW exists to promote the Bible's teaching on men, women, and marriage. You can learn more at cbmw.org. The Nashville Statement is a confessional document released by CBMW in 2017. Since its release, the Nashville Statement has been signed by over 25,000 evangelical pastors, scholars, and leaders, as well as adopted and affirmed by evangelical churches and institutions across the world. In this podcast series, we are walking through each of the 14 articles of the Nashville Statement as we discuss the statement's biblical basis and ethical implications with Denny, who is one of the statement's principal authors. I'm Colin Smothers, Executive Director of CBMW. And my name is Denny Burke. I'm the President of CBMW. We're continuing our series through the Nashville Statement, and we're coming to Article 2 in this episode. And the affirmation states this. It says, We affirm that God's revealed will for all people is chastity outside of marriage and fidelity within marriage. Denny, can you unpack that for us? Yeah, first of all, it's acknowledging that God has made himself known to us. He has a revealed will. Will um, We often do make distinctions between his secret will and his revealed will. Um, his secret will would be those acts of providence that we don't know except in hindsight. As we look back and see how God has acted in history, there are many things we just don't know about life and the world. We don't know who the next president's going to be. We uh, don't know what nations are going to rise and fall in the next 100 years. God knows all of that. It will happen according to his will. Uh, but we don't know all, all of that. Uh, but there are things that, that we do know because he has disclosed them to us. And we know that God has revealed himself in what we call natural revelation, which means there are things that are true about God and reality that we can know just from looking at creation. Um, Romans 1 says that which is known about God has been clearly seen through what has been made so that sinners, even if they don't have a gospel, they're without excuse. So there are truths that we know because of God's revelation through nature. Um, the psalmist says that the heavens declare the glory of God day to day pours forth speech. Their line has gone out into all of the earth. So God is communicating truth about himself through natural revelation. The Bible also teaches, though, that there is a, uh, a specific uh, revealed will of God that happens in special revelation, and that would be anytime God speaks through a prophet, and when he, certainly when he spoke through his son, Jesus Christ, and then certainly when we think about the Bible. Um, the Bible is God's written revelation. Now, natural revelation can tell us true things, but it doesn't tell a person how to get saved. Um, special revelation tells us everything that we need for life and godliness. Older theologians would talk about those two books, the book of nature and the book of scripture. So you're saying that underneath God's revealed will is not only God's revealed will in scripture, but also in nature, and both of those testify to the marriage covenant. That's right. I don't see natural revelation and special revelation as at odds. I think they're complementary. And, you know, so some things that are hinted at in natural revelation are confirmed and made super clear in special revelation. So you can know something about God's will for sexuality just by looking at how human bodies are made. Uh, you don't have to be a Christian to understand that a man and a woman are meant to come together and to unite in a certain way that brings forth children. You know, so, so you're seeing in natural revelation what is right and wrong, at least one aspect of what would be right and wrong about 
um, uh, sexuality just by looking at nature. Something we should note, uh, every culture, almost every culture throughout time and space has affirmed. That's right. That's right. And, that, and I think that's why Paul talks about, um, you know, women who give up the natural use of the man to, to be with other women and, and likewise men being with men in Romans 1. He says it's against nature, katafusin. And nature there would be just God's creation design that anybody can see if they've got two eyes and you know a rational soul they're they're able to to view this and so god's revealed will comes in both ways you've got the book of nature you've got the book of scripture and we're concerned about what both say but um, our ultimate authority obviously is um, scripture and what god's revealed will says there so article two says that god's revealed will is for all people to have chastity outside of marriage and fidelity within marriage. Can you explain the difference there between chastity and fidelity, chastity outside, fidelity within? Yeah, absolutely. One thing I I don't want to skip over, though, is just it is for all people. In other words, we don't serve a parochial God who, you know, that rules over just a part of the earth, okay, and certain people. The the will of God that we're talking about um, applies to everyone. So, Anyone living in sexual sin is actually sinning against the God that they may or may not know. So this is God's will for for all people, and it's not you know a parochially concerned thing here. But when it comes to your question about chastity outside of marriage and fidelity within marriage, it's really interesting. I remember there was a critic right after the Nashville statement came out, and who pointed out that you should have chastity outside of marriage and chastity inside of marriage. And, you know, made it sound like we're using chastity in a a strange way or uh, I agree totally with what that criticism was saying in terms of the concern. Um, There, there is a commitment to holiness that we're called to have both within and with, without outside of marriage. I think the, the, the complaint there really had to do with just different uses and definitions of the term chastity. Sometimes people use the term chastity to refer to, Purity from unlawful sexual intercourse. In, in fact, that's the first definition you'll see in the Oxford English Dictionary. Purity from all unlawful sexual intercourse. Well, that would apply to people who are married and who aren't married. But then there's also another definition of, of chastity. It's the second definition within Ox- Oxford Dictionary. It says, abstinence from all sexual intercourse, virginity, celib- uh, celibacy. And that's what That's the sense in which we were using it. Um, is is the sense that you're going to abstain if you're not if you're not married you're going to abstain from any kind of sexual contact okay so God's revealed will for all people is chastity outside of marriage so you're going to abstain outside of marriage and then fidelity within marriage which means you're going to do what your marriage vows say you're going to do you're going to have and to hold from this day forward forsaking all others you're going to have an exclusive monogamous relationship with one person and it's going to be under a marriage covenant. And so that's pretty much everybody. I mean, that covers everybody on the planet. You're either married or not, right? Um, everybody falls into one of those two categories, and you have a responsibility for sexual holiness no matter which co- category that you're in. Some people might chafe against the idea that this statement, even this article here, is organized around uh, defining you know, what's permissible and impermissible around marriage. So single People, you know, are called to chastity outside of marriage and fidelity. Uh, married people called to chastity within 
marriage. Can you speak to that about uh, why marriage is sort of our lodestar on all things sexual morality considered? Well, we mentioned this, you know, in a previous episode. This is just the way that Jesus spoke about things. When it comes to understanding maleness, femaleness, the meaning of marriage, really the meaning of singleness, to be quite honest, it, it is kind of tethered to what we understand marriage to be. So I, I'm thinking of Matthew 19 again, where they're asking Jesus a question about divorce. And, you know, they point out that, you know, Moses allows divorce. And Jesus says, well, from the beginning, it was not so. It just wasn't this way. He says, have you not read um, that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female? And the two became one flesh. And so he quotes Genesis 1 and 2 to answer a question about, you know, divorce. And then he, and all of that is setting up a conversation later in Matthew 9, or right after this in Matthew 19, about singleness. And what are, what, you know, what, what are the different, what, what's the gift of singleness all about? He, and that, that's the text where he talks about some people are born eunuchs, some people are made eunuchs by men, others make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom. And so he says, you know, so he's talking about people who are never going to be married there. So all of this is, is held together in Scripture. Um, marriage is, is what our bodies are oriented toward sexually. And some people may end up not getting married, but nevertheless, you're not going to understand maleness and femaleness if you're not understanding what our bodies are made for in terms of a, a sexual union with someone of the opposite sex within the covenant of, of marriage. So you have to talk about this, even if you're single, to understand your singleness. One trend we've seen uh, across the globe, really, but even making inroads in evangelicalism is marriage rates plummeting. So even as our world is changing and marriage is no longer becoming the norm, we could even say, uh, among individuals, Christians, etc., um, you know, the, the, the passage comes to mind from Hebrews 13, let marriage be held in honor um, by all. This is what Christians are called to, to uphold the good, um, the good revelation that marriage is designed by God and good for not just married people, but also single people to uphold that definition. Yeah, absolutely. So going on to uh, the denial, it says, We deny that any affections, desires, or commitments ever justify sexual intercourse before or outside marriage, nor do they justify any form of sexual immorality. So let's start right there at the, the beginning. Any affections, desires, or commitments. Uh, what's the difference between an affection and a desire? Well, it's just talking about the fact that you know, human beings are more than just their bodies. They are um, a bundle of uh, emotions, uh, thoughts. You know, we, we, we talk about the human being being a, a unified, uh, a unity of soul and, and body, right? There's an immaterial part. There's a material part. But somewhere in that interaction of material and immaterial, we have um, our pre-behavioral dispositions, right? We desire things. We have attractions towards things. Now, in a perfect world, all of our desires, all of our attractions would be rightly ordered so that they never incline towards anything that would be against the will of God. But in a Genesis 3 world, where we're all living east of Eden, nobody's perfect, we're all broken in some way, our desires and our passions and our affections, they, they can incline towards things that are forbidden by God. 
And the Bible teaches that whenever that's the case, you're, you're, you're sinning. Your sinning is not just a matter of, of your deeds. It's a matter of what you, you desire. Even in a pre-cognitive, pre-volitional way, is that what uh, affections is getting at? Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I think always of Matthew 5. We'll come back to Matthew 5, I'm sure, a lot of times over the, the course of these discussions about the Nashville Statement. But Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, anybody, anyone who looks at a woman in order to desire her sexually has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so all he's trying to say there is that, look, it's not, you can't check this box if you're, just as long as you're not doing adultery. If you're desiring adultery, you're, the sin has already started there. So sin is not just a matter of your deeds. It's also a matter of your desires. In fact, your deeds flow from your desires. Now, this is important today in discussions about sex, sexuality because there are a lot of people who say, well, I naturally feel certain kinds of sexual attractions. And because I just naturally feel those things, they must be right. I didn't ask for these attractions. I, they just come up inside of me. And, I, and here you, you think, okay, Denny, you're setting up a, a conversation about homosexuality. I'm actually not. I'm saying there are a lot of people who think, you know, I, I know I'm already married and I have children, but I am already starting to feel affections and desires for this other woman who's not my wife. She makes me happy. She makes me feel great. She makes me feel young again. My current wife, she makes me feel this is breaking down. Our relationship is going nowhere. And so what people will say is they will baptize those desires that because they feel them and they didn't ask for them, then they must be right. And so whatever I feel must be right and celebrated. And so you'll see a marriage break apart because, because a guy wants to go with a woman who's not his wife because he's just following his desires. And so what we're trying to say here is that you can't um, say that your affections or desires or any other sort of internal commitment can never become the basis to justify committing sexual immorality. That's, that's the thing. But a lot of people, that's kind of the way they live their lives. Whatever it is they feel in order to feel, to be authentic, to be true to themselves, they have to follow those desires, even if it means breaking up um, a marriage. Yeah, it's, I think it's a helpful thing to point out that there's almost like a progression here on the way that uh, desire, you know, unfolds even within our own human person. You have an affection that maybe comes to you, uh, and then a desire, maybe you set your heart on that thing and then commit uh, to it. So um, so even those desires that you haven't committed to or that you don't want, uh, those are two also, or those are also implicated in this statement and even by Scripture. They're unjustified. Yeah, well, we're a fallen people. We live in a fallen world. You shouldn't expect that everything you feel is going to be right all the time. Sometimes our desires, our feelings lie to us, and which that's the hardest thing for modern people to hear today, where we're living in a world of you know expressive individualism, which is that the, the true path to happiness and wholeness and the good life is the expression and affirmation of whatever it is you feel about yourself. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that we're sinners and uh, we are that way from birth. And sometimes the things we feel are quite contrary to God's will. So that's why we have to learn not to trust our feelings. We learn to trust the word of God. 
And when we do that, we're not going to be led away by our desires into all kinds of sin. So those affections, desires, commitments, they don't justify sexual intercourse before or outside marriage. But there's, then there's this clause at the end of Article 2, nor do they justify any form of sexual immorality. How's that different? What, what's been added to the statement with that clause? Well, it's trying to say, it's trying to cover all the bases here, but if you deny any desires, affections, commitments, ever justify sexual intercourse before or outside marriage, that's defining it vis-a-vis marriage, but then also, nor do they justify any form of sexual immorality. And there's a Greek word that underlies... Yes. The- so in the Bible, there's this this Greek word, porneia, and it's it's frequently translated as sexual immorality. If you're looking at an older translation, it will be translated as fornication. But the term is really a catch-all for any kind of unlawful sexual activity. And for the for the Jews, when they heard this term... I think when they heard Jesus say this term, when they thought porneia, they immediately went back to Leviticus 18. And Leviticus 18 spells out all the different kinds of sexual relationships that would be outside of marriage and therefore deemed immoral, porneia. And it talks about incest. It talks about bestiality. It talks about a number of things. It talks about adultery. It also talks about homosexuality. And it's saying that there's all of these different kinds of relationships which some of them could terminate in a marriage, but some of them it would be impossible to terminate in a marriage, but they're still immoral, right? So even within a, you know, a, a premarital sexual relationship, that could end up in a marriage at some point. That actually can't happen, though, with homosexuality. It would just be sexual immorality, and there is no before or after marriage because you can't have a marriage between you know, two men or, or two women. So to sum up, Article 2, God's revealed will is chastity outside of marriage, fidelity within marriage. We should say that these things are good for us, good for our communities, good for uh, as individuals, as society. These are the things that will make a society flourish. That's right. Amen. Resources like the CBMW podcast are made possible by generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider giving at cbmw.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening.